This morning we are continuing, uh, Steve and I are getting to preach through 2 Timothy. We're continuing in that to hopefully give y'all some continuity, but also us in what we get to do. So please turn to your Bibles, 2 Timothy 2, verse 22 to 26, as we hear God's word for us this morning. 2 Timothy 2, 22 to 26. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is the Lord's word for us. Let us pray. God, we pray this morning that your word would do that for which you have sent it that it would not return void in our ears, in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives, but that your spirit would anchor it and accomplish the good work in the gospel of helping us, directing us, anchoring us to call upon you from a pure heart, to pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace, especially amongst this community. So we pray, Lord, that your spirit would do what only you can do to allow us to hear the gospel that is at work here. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a lot of context I think we need to get into this because it's easy to jump into the list of what not to do and what to do and then call it a day and move on. But remember, please, in this context, we've moved through 2 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul has anchored this really important imperative, this command to Timothy, and by extension, not just pastors, but all of us who call upon the Lord. He commands him, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And he doesn't leave it there. He kind of uh, makes that practical. What does that look like? And he tries to spell that out for Timothy. So he says in verse 15, to rightly handle the word of truth. And that's very important, obviously, for us. But all of us need to rightly handle, to uh, go to the Word, to understand it, and then apply it. And in verse 20, we heard last week that Stephen showed us what that means for all of us that want to be uh, cleansed and pure vessels, instrument in the God's, of the universe's hands for His good purposes as the master of the house chooses to use us how and when and where he will. And where we're going from this. Next week, we'll get into chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, I believe. And we'll see that these last days, things are not going to get any easier. That shouldn't be a surprise to us, but it should make us refine our efforts, double down on the gospel, and really encourage one another. So that's where we are, and that's where we're going. And on one level, we read through this, and, and we want to hold a couple really important tensions here. 
we want to hold the responsibility that Paul clearly places on the Lord's servant's shoulders. The, the Lord's servant is commanded what to do and how to do it, to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And how that looks is to be kind, gentle, correcting our opponents, but to do that in a peaceful, gospel-centered way. But it also holds God's responsibility highly. He anchors all of this in God's sovereignty that he is in charge, and we don't want to miss that God may perhaps grant them repentance. We're responsible, and God will grant them repentance. And there's also a really hard and heavy piece that I don't want to miss, that those that are quarreling, those that are held in these controversies, that's not accidental or by chance. That's the snare of the devil. Whoa. What do we do with that? I want to try to unravel some of these, what I don't think are tensions, but they seem like they're built in there in kind of a, a opposing way. So what is my role in the midst of this? What is our role as a community? How do I follow this? What must I do? And really, who must I be to answer these important questions? So I want to bring the three keys here, three points. First, the two imperatives at the beginning, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So flee and pursue. The second point is as the Lord's servant. What does that mean for us that call upon the Lord with a pure heart that he is my master, I am his servant. What does that help us understand? And then finally, the significant point that God is the one that grants the gift of repentance. What does that mean for us? And what should we always be aiming to pursue as God gives the gospel? So first, flee and pursue. There's two important pieces, and I want to first understand what we're fleeing from and what we're pursuing too. And, and hopefully this pattern sets up exactly what the pattern of the gospel has been all the way through Paul's writing, but especially what that looks like in our community. So what are we to flee? Verse 22, he starts right off, flee youthful passions. And this is a very rehearsed concept for Paul, especially as he's writing to Timothy. We see in 1 Timothy 6.11, he says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue, and he gives us almost the same list, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. What does it mean to flee these things? In that context, he's talking specifically about the, the vanity of riches and some of the emptiness of the world's pursuits. But then he goes on to call this, in this verse, he calls this youthful passions. What are the youthful passions? Well, he doesn't give us a list, except he shows us what that looks like. He shows us that it's actually, the passions are the disordered desires. Not every passion we have is sinful. But they become sinful when we pursue the wrong thing to the wrong degree in the wrong direction and for the wrong purpose, right? So the youthful passions aren't just saying, all right, kids, everything you do is wrong, so flee from it. No, because we all know that kids can do wonderfully right and good and joy, life-giving, faithful things. Even in Paul's own writing in 1 Corinthians 13, he said he spoke like a child, he thought like a child, he reasoned like a child. 
in that context, it's not specifically any sin categories. He's not He's just not loving the way that he ought. Some, can, some of that can be sin, obviously. But the specific nuance of childlike behavior is not automatically sinful unless the way that we're immature in our faith is pursuing wrong passions, the disordered desires, being immature in the way we do what we do, misplaced loves. And here he is refining Timothy's thought on specific sins that are tied to an end goal that is wrong. It's the what and the how of sin. Don't do this, this sin, and don't do it in a way that is immature, that's showing your faith isn't maturing. In 1 Timothy 4.12, he encourages, he exhorts Timothy not to let anyone despise you for your youth. But then he says, set an example. What does that mean for the way that youthful passions play out? He's showing that you can be mature regardless of your age. And uh uh-oh, the inverse of that works too, right? I can show some of my immaturity regardless of how many gray hairs I'm sporting on a given day. So it's not automatically the age that matters. It's how we're showing maturity in what we're pursuing. But here, he's not dancing around issues. He's not toying with words. He's saying clearly, flat out, flee from the sinful pursuits of immature faith and pursue what is godly, righteousness, faith, love, and peace. In 1 Timothy 1.5, again, the, the very first letter that Paul has written to Timothy, he says, pursue these things. Pursue love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is Paul's trifecta of goodness. Pursue these things. Flee the sin because it's not worth it and pursue wholeheartedly from a pure heart, everything that you will need, that you have been supplied in the gospel. So pursuing these, having a pure heart, doing the right things does not give us a pure heart. We all know that, both by the word and by plenty of experience. But when we understand our heart's been renewed from the inside out, and we'll unpack that in a little bit, We can do things, not just the right things, but the right motives to do those right things. Having a good conscience, a clear conscience, and a sincere faith. And he warns us that certain persons, by swerving from these three, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith, by not pursuing those, certain persons have wandered away into vain discussions. This again puts us into those important categories. There are some things that are majorly important in Scripture. We've seen plenty of examples of those. The the gospel and how it plays out in every single aspect of life. There are some things that are secondary or tertiary in importance, but they're kind of important. And how we go about that, Paul really cares. And there are some things that are minor. It doesn't matter how they play out or how we talk about them. They're ignorant controversies. They're foolish quarrels. And we can probably think of too many examples of those. 
So what is it that gives us this category of the foolish in verse 23, the foolish or ignorant controversies? Paul says, you know they breed quarrels. And here we got to think, well, where are they breeding these quarrels? Because Paul kind of leaves that hanging. And as soon as we think about this, that goes, oh yeah, they can even breed quarrels right in here. That's not just always over there. That's not just in the parking lot or in the, that part of the place. They breed quarrels because my heart, our hearts are set to default in quarrel mode. That's where we land. But I like to justify that. I like to rationalize that. I like to hire my inner lawyer and say, well, well wait a second there, Paul. You're wise and smart and all, but aren't there some issues that need debating? Aren't there some of these things that we need to have a little discussion and, and arrive at a conclusion about? Aren't there some things that need uh, arguments that need winning? Maybe. Sure. Yes, they're important things. And the point of the gospel, what Paul stands on firmly every single time, is always the message of truth and the method of how we arrive at that truth. Because the gospel cure is not just do it softer, kinder, gentler, talk about harder things easier. It's talk about the really hard truths and in a gentle way. And I need to hear that first here in the quarrels of my own heart. Because the gospel cure, you've heard this from a number of different angles, it's cheer up. You're much worse than you think you are. The coral that you think you're having, it's much worse inside. If you want to peel back some of the, onion, the stinky onion lighters and get to some of the, the core of what's going on that's coming out of your mouth, that's really rotten on the inside, that's way worse. But cheer up. Because grace is always better. The gospel is always sweeter as it lands truth right there in the very place that you're quarreling, whether it's with yourself or with others or even that heavy quarrel with God. Cheer up because grace is better. Now, we want to think that getting there means I have to do the right things to be the right person that I have to work hard at these righteousness things, the faith things, the love things, the peace things, so that I can show that I have a pure heart, and it's exactly the opposite. God gives a pure heart. He gives a heart of flesh. The Holy Spirit renews us from the inside out. He makes us clean so that we can show that in how we do what we do. So the pure heart is both pure in that it's spirit-renewed, and it's pure in that it's blood-washed. There is no sin, no stain that clings to a pure heart. Yes, we need to do what we've just done every single Sunday, which is confess our sins. But that sin need not stain. It's been washed clean by the blood of Christ. And especially, as we're going to get to in a second, because we're the Lord's servant. Me quarreling over my sin or over the, the bickerings of others, it need not be the, the primary or even the secondary outlet of my conversation because I'm new. 
I'm renewed. I'm, I'm pure. I'm washed clean. How can I possibly convey anything less to others who call upon the name of the Lord with a pure heart? How can I treat them less than how I've been treated? That phrase, pursue these things, righteousness, faith, love, and peace, the second phrase in verse 22, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, puts me in this community. It reminds me that I am not the island that always needs to be right and true and perfect in any discussion. We are in this together. And so the intent here is that I need to set aside some of my desire to win for the benefit of y'all. That's the, the southern proper formal second person plural pronoun for our grammatically correct fans. Y'all are more important than me. And we need to rehearse that as well. So here to arrive at what we're talking about, it, Paul is saying, Timothy, get biblical. Get into the scriptures. Rightly handle the word of truth in what you say. Let it be the gospel clarity and how you say it. Let the word of scripture cut like a two-edged sword, not your sharp tongue. Oh, that lands because I am responsible as a leader in the Lord's community. All of us are leaders, but those of us in other callings are responsible for how the Lord's community speaks, how we discuss, even how we debate, rightfully discuss heavy things and for striving for the gospel truths. It, it really undercuts a lot of my motives. Sometimes I want to be right. Sometimes I want to just win. Sometimes that being right, that uh, power discussion in my heart needs to be undercut with humility. Sometimes I need to strive less for correctness and need to redirect that into gentleness. Then I can prove that what is right is more important than being right. It also reminds us that those who call on the Lord, this word behind the English is in the Greek is a very uh, uh, important, it's crying out. It's the same word that is used for that kind of plea of prayer. If I'm calling on the Lord, if I'm praying to the Lord from a pure heart, from right motives, even if I don't necessarily feel it or do it all the time, if I'm praying for those people that I might be in opposition to, God's going to show up there. He's going to change me and help to direct my conversations. That's how it works. Please resort to the power of prayer. Have you ever noticed that? Those people that you pray for often, hopefully habitually, continually, especially those people that we might too easily put in the category of the enemy. How can I have hard words for them when in one hand, out of one side of my mouth, I'm praying the Lord of the universe, please soften my heart, soften their hearts, and then turn around and word vomit on them because I need to be right? That prayer is going to shape me and shape our words and shape our conversations so that we have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies because 
Paul knows. He's seen them firsthand. He's witnessed them plenty of times in this church in Ephesus. Look in Acts 20. Look in the book of Ephesians that Paul's writing through the same group of people. You know that happens. They multiply exponentially, Timothy. Don't get caught up in that. He couldn't use a stronger word for foolish, ignorant controversies. Those things that we put on the level of minor issues dealt with in a poor way, that stuff, Timothy. Don't get your heart and lips wrapped up in that. Because, verse 24, our second point, because the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. You cannot get your attitude and words wrapped up in these quarrels. They're foolish. They're ignorant, literally unknowing controversies. So he uses, Paul uses this really weighty phrase, maybe to snap, that's the bad snap, to snap Timothy out of it, to say, you're the Lord's servant. Here's how the Lord's servant acts. Here's what the Lord's servant values. Who's the Lord's servant then? Anyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. He's Lord, which literally means master. If he's the Lord of my life, then I'm his servant. How do I relate to him then? As as a servant, a humble servant to a master and king of the universe. Now, this phrase is is really significant, and I'm not going to go every place in the scripture that this goes. Y'all could do that, and it would be wonderfully fruitful. But go first, please, to Matthew 12, 18 to 21. This is where Matthew uses the same phrase out of Jesus' own mouth to say who Jesus is and what he's doing is fulfilling the prophet Isaiah. And this is Matthew 12 is quoting Isaiah 42. Spend the afternoon diving into how this looks for Jesus, his life, work, ministry, death and resurrection, and what that means for you as a servant of the Lord. But here's just the, the key phrase. Matthew 12, 18. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. God speaking of his son, the servant, the Lord's servant. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. Y'all ever walk back in the property or in a big hay field or near a, a lake, maybe a swamp, and you've, you've seen the, the reeds, the cattails sometimes, and they're just a little bit bent from a strong wind, and if you brush by them, they'll just teeter and die. Jesus, when walking, when ministering among bruised reeds, ones whose spirit had already been bent by the harshness, the oppressiveness of the religious Pharisees, Jesus walks by them, And he does not break them. He gives them a gentle law, a freeing gospel. And when he speaks, if you've ever had the power go out and you have the candle that's, you've lit it, and it's just just enough flame, that little wick that you don't want to have go out because your lighter just went out of fuel, right? Just enough flame if you talk too loud. Kids, come down. If you puff too much air at that, There goes your flame. Jesus doesn't put out a smoldering wick. 
with his words. He speaks gently. He whispers authoritatively, but gently. He is kind. He is able to teach. He does patiently endure evil. And so how much more should his servants, should those that have humbled themselves under the mighty hand of God, how much more should we do likewise? Should we also be kind, able to teach, patient, and gentle? One commentary puts it this way. If God's answer to the oppressors of the world is not more oppression, nor his answer to arrogance more arrogance, but rather in quietness, in humility, in simplicity, he will take all of the evil into himself and return only grace. That is the power of the gospel. In other words, if I call on the Lord from a pure heart, if I not only call Jesus my Savior, but my Lord, if I not only want to serve my Redeemer, but my King, it absolutely matters what I say and how I say it. Here's what I think is hugely important. If I lead in with proving to be right, what has offended that other person? It's me. If I lead in with gentleness, kindness, and I can understand how and where the gospel applies, and if I can anchor the gospel truths into that situation so humbly that they see the gospel, if the gospel offends them, praise the Lord. And please hear me, if, if you don't catch what I just said, if you are offended by that, the offensive part of the gospel is that you and I are as sinners never deserving an ounce of grace. And you and I have been given abundant grace. What should offend me of the gospel? It should be offensive that the holy king of the universe came, lived, and died for me and for you. That should offend you. That is not justice unless... It was a gift. Unless it's something you can simply receive and enjoy and submit to and live. That is what must lead our conversations. If it's anything but that, this guy's just got an attitude. I don't need to listen to them. Another one of those hypocritical people. So let us lead with grace. Let us apply the gospel. Let us point to our Lord and Master. Let us serve him in what we say and how we say it. So many examples of this. I could point to dozens in this room who I've seen this modeled incredibly well. Closing my eyes so I don't accidentally catch someone's eyes. Because it would be too easy to. But there are so many examples throughout history where we'd say, look at this person. 
Look at not what they said, but how they said it and how that matched everything they lived, especially those where it's a huge turn night and day from the person they were before to the person they are in Christ. Read anything by John Newton. The one who wrote Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me, I don't think he's over-exaggerating when he calls himself a wretch. And he understands the amazingness of grace. So much so that people who wrote about his life said he had a habitual tenderness. A slave ship captain. So captivated by the grace of Christ that he lived within a a habitual tenderness. He spoke. He modeled. He exemplified so much so that people he influenced, William Wilberforce, pastors that came after him, influenced generations because of their humility, their gentleness, and the way they pointed to the gospel with what they said and how they said it. Finally, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. That is solely our responsibility. Here's the beautiful part. That God may perhaps grant them repentance. How incredible is that? You've done your part, Lord's servant. What's God's part? that he may actually grant them repentance. That's exactly, the word repentance is exactly the pattern of the gospel. It's fleeing something and pursuing something better. God's going to grant them that. He's going to give them that. He's going to renew their desire to even want that. And what does that repentance do? It leads to a knowledge of the truth. Here's how this works. The message and method of the gospel is so rich and beautiful. This is what Romans 2, where Paul wrote in Romans, we just went through that. He says that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. The overwhelming, abundant kindness of the Lord is aimed, it's purposed, it will lead you to repentance from turning from sin and turning to new life. Paul's logic here is so rich. Your responsibility, my responsibility, to not quarrel, but to pursue humility in how we see and apply the gospel. Because God's responsibility is the repentance part. And he's given that to us. And we hope that he will give that to others because it's that rich and free. Now, I hope that you're hung up on that little word, perhaps. I hope that you're reading through there going, wait, wait, perhaps? Like, there's a chance he won't? No. That's, that's a really hard word in English. What's behind that in Greek is this subjunctive case, this hypothetical that is not saying, well, maybe God will, maybe he won't. Who knows? That's not what it's saying. This is an if-then statement. If God has so foreordained, read Ephesians 1, to apply the predestining grace that he has chosen to put on people, 
and he's using your humble, gentle words to do that, perhaps in that conversation, he's going to grant grace to people and their lives are going to be turned from fleeing, from pursuing ignorant, childlike passions to passionately pursuing the gospel. Perhaps you could be the conduit, the channel one of the people that show them what that looks like, that's where the perhaps lands. It's not that there's a variable of God's will. It's that it's anchored in God's character. He is overflowing with this grace that wants to see lives totally, drastically changed. Perhaps he's going to use one of us. Perhaps it could be our conversation. Perhaps it could be how I deal with this next hard situation. Lord, may it be so. But for those that he grants to the repentance to see what it does, what does it lead to? It leads to a knowledge of the truth. This is a beautiful parallel that Paul stacks up here. Granting repentance, the Lord's gift of grace that turns the blind and gives them the sight of faith leads them not to just knowing about the truth. It leads them to a deep, anchored experience of knowledge of the truth, understanding, acceptance of the gospel. This is a rich, rich Greek word. It, it literally means that you don't just know about, you haven't just uh, Googled the encyclopedia on the truth. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, there's a little diagram. That's boring. No. This is the Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. This is epigenosis. That's your Greek nugget of the day. It's so rich. It's not just the gnosis, the knowledge of, take or leave it, fact check it. No, it's you've experienced it. It's come into your heart. It changed everything. And it's, but the deepest anchored smile for eternity on who you are. You've tasted and seen it. You've turned from sin to new life. And now you have a knowledge of the truth. You know that you know that you know it's good. And nothing else could ever be as sweet or as tempting or as desirous again. That's how God grants repentance. That's how he turns sinners to sons and daughters and gives them a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses. What senses were they not arrived at? Not just their five senses, but the sense of spiritual sight. They're, they're blinded to that truth, so much so that Paul doesn't hesitate to say that they're actually escaping, in, give, in God giving them repentance, they're escaping the snare of the devil. You ever seen an animal walk around in a snare? Not just like a cute fluffy bunny with one of those jaw trapped on its legs, but like a deer that, yeah, it's ugly. It's painful watching that. You would do anything to, to hold it, to gentle calm it down, to get that gnarly jaw off of its leg. Wouldn't you? Plead with it. Please see, this is hurting you. Please calm down. Your anger is not helping. 
You've been captured to do Satan's will. And you want to release, you want to help to free that, that only the gospel can. Now, I don't want to miss, I don't want to try to dodge, that here Paul is using this phrase, they're escaping the snare of the devil, and he's talking about people who could or could not be, at least in the community of the church, at, at best believers, at worst wolves among the sheep. What do we do with that? Clearly this is not saying that believers can be possessed. Not, not worried about that. But it is saying that the way we speak and the way we act can absolutely be those little avenues of the way the, the, the devil works. What is his main tool, his main weapon? is deception. It's taking a little bit of the truth, a little nugget of, did God really say? And twisting it so that it's all lie. You're really right. You should totally get your point across. You should stand up for that. Other people need to know how smart you are. You absolutely have a right to argue on that point. That's a little lie that's twisted in a big way that can be a snare that's dragging you into sin. What is going to help you escape from that? Repentance. New life. A knowledge of the truth that helps you see through the lie to see what is wrong and to see what is right. I heard one pastor say, what's the, what's the best way? He's the, here's a good weekly trail life analogy for y'all. What's the best way to see how crooked a stick is? Measure it. Get some geometric angles going. Hold it up to the sun, see the shadow and the hypotenuse. No. Put a, state, a straight stick next to it. This one's all bent and wobbly. This one's perfectly straight. Oh, it's clear now. Apologize for the little bit of sarcasm there, but what helps us see the faults, deception, the lies, the untruth? By seeing and hearing clearly the straight grace of the gospel. That is what God uses to open our eyes. That's exactly what Paul preaches in Acts 26, that God opened their eyes, that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the glory of God. And he anchors it in repentance, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. We might think some of these issues are minor and that's worth arguing about. We might think these controversies are, yeah, they're secondary, but it's really, tr- it's really important. But under the surface, what matters deeply and much more long-lastingly is how my heart is trained on Christ. And Satan does and can Use deception, use twisted truth, use blindness to snare, to turn sheep into wolves, and to corrupt and destroy. And in the midst of that, we have every tool at our disposal, every tool of the gospel, every word of truth that we need to rightly handle. So what we say and how we say it match the glory, the goodness, the humility and gentleness of our Savior who is known as 
gentle and lowly at heart. So let me leave us with a few application questions, if I may. What youthful passions, or just passions, if you're a kid, you don't want to make them youthful because you're already young. What passions do I need to flee from, and what spirit fruit do I need to pursue? Where is my heart quarrelsome? And it could be in our thoughts, in our attitudes, or in our words and deeds. As one who claims to call on the Lord, do I call on him from a pure heart? Do I pray to God for humility? And do I pray for those who might be considered my enemies, even those that I don't agree with, especially those in this community? Do I seek to be kind to all, able to teach the truth of the gospel, patiently enduring evil, correcting my opponents with gentleness? Maybe there's a crooked stick. Just line up a straight stick next to it. Here's the truth. I can leave it at that. Praying all the while that God might perhaps grant them repentance as he has done for me when I deserved anything but mercy and grace. And lastly, do I see the seriousness of quarrels, contentious, and foolish controversies as a snare of the devil, which God and God alone needs to rescue us from through repentance that leads to a knowledge of the truth in and through the gospel? I hope that those questions are not just ones we can check a yes box on. I hope those questions are one that help to encourage us, to refine us, and maybe start asking those questions of others. Do you see me as gentle? Help correct me. Do you see me as kind? Am I able to correct? Because generations will see that in this community, the gospel was not just talked about, but it was eagerly lived. So that next week, when we get into the hardness, that things will get more challenging, more difficult in what Paul calls these last days, that we can shine the light of the glory of the gospel even brighter. Please pray with me. God, our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the glory of your gospel, the grace that is poured out to us, to sinners such as I am, that we can know and love and joy and share, that we can taste and see that the Lord is good, and that's how I can talk and correct and guide others that you perhaps will grant repentance. Teach us this pattern. Retrain us in the pattern of repent and believe so that we can taste and see. And now lead our hearts as we move to your table to be able to do that in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.